Good afternoon. Welcome to Left Out on WRCT 88.3. My name is Danny Slater, and um, this is Left Out, the program. It's an independent news program that um, discusses news and views uh, left out of the mainstream media. Normally, Bob Harper is here, but he couldn't make it today. So um, uh, later on in the program, we'll be talking about the electric car and have a couple of guests on. Let me make a couple of announcements first. Um, there's the movie, Who Killed the Electric Car, is now showing in Squirrel Hill. It's, uh, it's a very good movie, and I highly recommend that everybody take a look at it. It's, um, it's in the Squirrel Hill Theater near the corner of Murray and Forward. Um, and it's Who Killed the Electric Car. You'll hear more, be hearing more about that movie later on in the show. Also, uh, we now have a mailing list for our program. You can um, go to the link on the webpage, leftout.info, and you can sign up for a mailing list, which uh, will uh, inform you of upcoming shows and um, uh, things like that. So in case you uh, forget to tune in, it'll, this will remind you in a little in advance of the show. So um, today we're going to have two, we have two guests here. One is uh, on the phone, well, one is in the studio, one is on the phone. So here in the studio we have Ela Norbosh. Ela? Hi, Danny. Hi. So... Um, uh, we also have on the line uh, Chris Payne. Chris, are you there? I don't hear Chris yet on the line. Well, we'll we'll get him. We'll get him in, in, in involved later on. Chris is the uh, director of a move, the movie "Who Killed the Electric Car" that I mentioned earlier, and uh, Ela is a um, professor of robotics at CMU's Robotics Institute, and uh, an expert in robots, of course, and mobile and robot vehicles, and as well as in electric cars because he has his own electric car that he drives around. Um, so um, maybe we can just start out. Oh, is, uh, Chris, are you there? I don't hear you. I still don't hear Chris. My producer is working uh, very hard to, uh, to get Chris on the phone. So let's just get, go, get going and, and start the show, and um, he'll, he'll join us. Um, so first of all, uh, before we get into the politics of the electric car, and there's a lot of interesting, complicated politics going on, um, let's just talk about what is the electric complicated politics going on. Um, let's just talk about what is the electric car. Like what, what is it? Maybe you could just give me a brief description of, you know, what it can do and, and uh, what are the sure. great things about it. Sure. When we say electric car, uh, usually what we mean is that the thing it doesn't have is an internal combustion engine. So the, the power, the, the energy savings device is a battery generally, and the propulsion device is an electric motor or multiple electric motors instead of the gasoline engine. So the torque is actually comes straight from electricity. Now, there's a lot of variations on that, but generally the idea behind an electric car is you're just storing electricity and then you're just using electricity, and that buys you one thing for free, which is since you're driving the car with an electric motor, you can also slow down by using the motor as a generator. And so that means you can both speed up using the electric motor and you can slow down and actually charge the batteries when you're going downhill. And that kind of saves That's the cool. Yeah. So, um, you know, that sounds great in theory. Oops. Uh, we, we've, uh, you know, you've seen kids' toys with the little radio-controlled cars and they zoom around really fast and they're, they're cool. But, um, but, you know, to make a real car that, that you know, grown-ups would want to use, I mean, that's a whole different thing, right? It's impossible to do that totally electrically, right? I mean, you can't have things like, you know, the car be comfortable. You can't go fast. It can't go a long distance between charging. You can't have electric windows. You can't have headlights, all the other, you know, energy 
consumptive things. It's totally impossible, yeah, isn't it? There's been a long-standing cynical view that I think has been promulgated year after year that electric cars are toys. They're sort of like uh, electric golf carts that you use on the right. golf course. They're not the real thing. They can't go fast. My electric car, which I drove in just now, you know, I took my child home in a bus, jumped in my electric car and drove here real fast. It goes 85 miles an hour. It goes 120 miles, and it charges in just a couple of few hours. So the idea that electric cars are impossible is basically a myth. I think that what's really going on is that the idea that a battery can have so much power inside of it that it can go tens of miles and hundreds of miles is something people just aren't used to thinking about. They're used to thinking about small batteries and cell phones. But you can make big batteries, and you can make lots of small batteries, and you can get excellent range and excellent performance out of them. So uh, I, let's try again for, um, for Chris Payne. Are you there, Chris? Hello. Hello, Chris. Uh, glad to have you on. Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me on. I'm sorry it's going to be such a short time. Okay. Well, uh, st- stay as long as you can, and then uh, if you have to leave, we'll, 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 we'll deal with it. It sounds like you have a great guest on yeah, uh, it's Ela Norbosh, who's uh, ex- you know he knows a lot about electric cars. He has one of his own, and um, I think you watched the movie as well. Well, all all of us have seen the uh, the movie Who Killed the Electric Car, which Chris was the um, the director of the film. It's a great film. Highly recommend that all of our listeners go out and see the movie to get educated about um, what happened with the electric car. So, uh, as you may have heard, Chris, we were just discussing. Um, well, uh, Ela was just talking about you know. Uh, the, the myths of the electric car being a toy and, and the fact that it actually is a really, a really uh, viable transportation vehicle to replace the gas car. Yeah. Um, so does it, have, does it have power windows? It sure does. Does it have, uh, does it have um, a heater in it? Yeah. And what happens in the winter? You, you freeze, don't you? No. <laughs> you turn the heater off when you're in the winter. Okay. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, actually, it's funny. Uh, the, not to bash the oil industry right off the bat, but Texaco had this big speech about why would people want electric cars? You'll go back to a time before they had heaters and power windows in cars. Just like, and the, the fact that this even got repeated is just hilarious because this technology is totally here today. It's just there's not the uh, industrial will to make it happen for a bunch of reasons. So um, w- what kind of batteries does your car have, uh, Ela? Uh, my battery, it, my car is a Toyota RAV4 EV, which is one of the cars that Chris uh, features in his film. It has nickel metal hydride batteries, and one of the nice things about those is here in Pittsburgh we get much colder winters than you have in Los Angeles and San Francisco, and the nickel metal hydrides work just fine in the cold weather, unlike lead-acid batteries would. So, um, so Chris, there was a, a lot of uh, other issues that... Um, that uh, well, some other benefits of the cars. I mean, maybe we could talk about that again for a second. So we talked about... Uh, uh, well, the number one benefit of an electric car is that we get off of oil. That is huge. And not just not from an environmental point of view, because even when you use national power, which is 55% coal, you're still dropping your CO2 by half. You're having none of the carbon monoxide problems and this, uh, nitrogen problems. You have a little bit of sulfur increase, but it's a huge net gain. But even forgetting the environmental benefits of it, it's a car that runs off of domestic U.S.-made power. No need for the Middle East. And this is a huge, huge thing, and it crosses the right-wing blue-red state barrier. And I think most people would agree that it would be nice to have cars that didn't require gasoline. I couldn't couldn't agree with Chris more. 
the challenge that we face is it's a massive economic shift in the power of money. You know, we spend a lot of money on the energy that makes our cars move forward, and it all goes to, to the gasoline companies right now. And the idea of that being diverted to the electric companies, it, it's a completely different group of people who would make all the money, and I think that's part of what scares them. Yeah, well, we'll get into later on what the, what the politics were when, when, uh, when, when, when these cars became real. So um, another aspect of, of, of the car that's mentioned certainly in the movie and, and um, um, is the fact that uh, there's a lot of stuff that you don't have to do with the electric car, like it's much cheaper and easier to maintain the car. Uh, it doesn't have a tailpipe that gets rusty. It doesn't have an engine that needs to be serviced. It doesn't have a... Um, no transmission, no carburetor, no tune-ups, no oil filters, no oil changes, It's no spark plugs. I mean, it's the electric car is essentially such a simple device in terms of being a motor which is coiled wire and batteries which can be very sophisticated but it's, it's not like all the moving parts of an engine so many people argue that one of the reasons that it pro proposes a threat is because the auto industry makes so much money in off aftermarket I mean these are multi multi-billion dollar businesses and so everybody plays up the two or three things that are scary about electric cars to people, i.e., what if I run out of power, and how long does it take me to charge, to the point that they're not even available in the marketplace as an option for people who want to try them. And it just shows how difficult it is to change. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that occurred to me, a certain simple logical argument, how many different models of car do you think are available for sale in the country? At least 100, right? All the car makers in the world are available in the U.S., you know, 100, maybe 100. Well, that means one of those models is getting less than 1% of the market. Isn't that a mathematical fact? Right. Yet they're still making that car. So the fact that, okay, even if only 1% of the people want an electric car, this still means that's a million cars or something like that, isn't it? Exactly. exactly. And it, it, it's enough to mass produce it and make it and make a profit from it, even if only 1% of the people wanted it. So um, Chris's point about lack of service is interesting. I've had my car since 2002, and uh, I have gone tens of thousands of miles with it, and I've serviced it a grand total of zero times. It's never been to a Toyota dealer, ever. I had the same Toyota RAV4 you did, and I had an EV1 before that. I've had an electric car for eight years. They've never been in for service, except for uh, I had a brake light go on in my EV1. And actually, ironically, I took the car in to have that looked at, and uh, they said, well, you can't have your car back. So well, why not? So well, your lease is up in two months, and we're taking all the cars back. But, you know, we'll give you a coupon for another car. So the, the service oh. thing is not to be underestimated as an issue. So uh, we, uh, we're talking to um, uh, Chris Payne and uh, Ela Norbosh about electric cars. If you want to give us a call, uh, the number is 412-268-9728. So uh, one of the questions that naturally, of course, comes up again is the cost of the car. Now, I noticed that the RAV4 EV, I believe, was marketed for $42,000 or something like that. Is that correct? That's right. So that, that's too expensive. Why would you pay that much for, well, I, I, I'm, being, I'm being the skeptic here. <laughs> but, of course, you don't have to service it. So if you look, look at that, and you don't have to pay $3 a gallon for gas. And they were just making these cars in limited batches. In fact, the real cost of that car, is, I'm sure, is more than 42000 because they only made 1000 of them or something. So they had to you know, sell them for some price. But they never allowed these cars to get into mass marketing, so they never got the advantages of that. And you know, in, in, in mass scale, I think the uh, Ford says that their Ford Escape hybrid costs a couple thousand more dollars to build. Is that, you guys know that statistic? Yeah, I think it's $2,000 more. 
And they say, well, the consumers are not willing to pay $2,000 more for a higher mileage per gallon car. Well, this is because, I mean, A, that's, you know, there's a little bit of truth to that, and the truth to that is that people aren't used to paying more for something and less later on, at least in cars. In fact, I think of cars as being a little bit like buying a printer at Staples, and it's $60 for the printer and $80 for the cartridge. That's what you get with, an, with a gas car. And with, a, with an electric car, you're, you're paying more up front, but you're not paying down the road. Right, you're not paying for the repair, you're paying less for the, for the power source as well. And your big replacement part on, on, a, on an electric car is every 150,000 miles or whatever, I think that's what uh, DWP got up to in uh, those, those Toyota RAV4 EVs, you replace the battery pack. So that's an expense, but it certainly doesn't amortize compared to an electric car. So what, what happened to all the RAV4s? I mean, are these, there's, that was the one car that didn't get recalled. Is that no, correct? They pulled most of them off the road and they just read them. Um, and then, you know, we, we pass out, you know, we're, we're tough on all the car companies, including Toyota. Now, Toyota, to their credit, did sell a few hundred of these cars and they did stop crushing them when enough protesters went to bat and said, what are you guys doing? Stop it. And uh, so they've, they've stopped the crushing program on those cars. The irony is that Toyota was better at public relations and at responding to us demonstrating than General Motors ever was. So let's go, let's go talk about the, the the whole political side a little bit. That that um, the the movie you know goes into great detail of, of describe going through the story of of what happened with these cars. Um, compare with alternative fuels. Oh, okay. We'll we'll get to that in a little in a little while. So uh, the the, uh, the the question is, um, or the the what the evolution of things was that first GM. Well, let me let me give. Well, maybe I mean this is a summary. I, I well, I don't want to do all the talking, but let me give a really quick summary of this. The first thing that happened was that um, I think some guys in California uh, started a company called Aerovironment in back in the late '80s, and they built a. Uh, a they were funded by GM to build a, a, a test car uh, called the. Oh gosh. The impact. Well, yeah. Well, they built. Yeah, they built this thing called the Impact, and GM funded that car, right? Well, Air, Air Environment, which is a. Uh, company was started by Paul McCready, who's one of America's greatest living engineers. He designed the bicycle-powered plane that crossed the English Channel, and he also designed the uh, first solar-powered airplane that crossed the English Channel in the 70s. One of, one of the great unsung heroes. I think he has like 30, 30 different pieces in the Smithsonian. Paul designed, uh, with, with his engineers at an environment, a solar-powered electric car that won a race for General Motors that General Motors paid for, an electric car race, solar race, across Australia. And there was so much publicity from this that GM said, wow, this is great. Let's make a consumer version of this car and see if we can put an electric car on the road and see if it makes, you know, can maybe change the world. And, and ironically, the guy who said that was Roger Smith, the much maligned uh, anti-villain or villain of the uh, Roger and me. Right. And uh, I think that you know, Roger lost his job shortly after this whole thing happened because GM was very skeptical about this. And... Once it was announced it was happening, California regulators actually saw the first version of an auto show and they went, aha, I knew you could do it. Now you have to do it. Not just you, GM, but all you car makers. 2% of your cars have got to be zero emission vehicles. We're giving you eight years to do it. And they did it, kicking and screaming. Uh, I think that the, the, the shock for everyone was these cars were so good. This technology really had arrived. And the big advantage over the cars from 100 years ago were that they're running on AC power. So they're extremely smooth and reliable, and they had all these other features, the power windows and heaters and all this stuff. And uh, 
there's a whole new revolution. And those of us that were lucky enough to try these few cars felt like, wow, the future has arrived. So this is why it was tough to see the, the programs ended and these cars taken away and destroyed. As we felt, boy, this is... America's not working very well. Yeah. So what? So what happened was during during the time from ninety from ninety to ninety six, GM developed the uh, the the EV one. Then they started producing it in ninety six uh, to try to again satisfy the requirements for California um, zero emissions requirements by ninety eight. And then, um, but then they really started trying to stop doing it and started huge pressure got pushed against the uh, California Air Resources Board. It's all, you know, laid out in the movie about the pressure that was put on them from everybody, from all the fuel companies and the, the, uh, the auto industry. Um, and then um, they managed to get the mandate sort of re com eventually completely repealed, right? Well, the, the coup de grace, and this is where the, the lobbyists were so clever with California, is they got California to say, hey, you know what, it's not really fair to give us an arbitrary number of cars. Just tell us that we can that we have to make as many cars as the market demands and as customers demand. And as soon as California agreed to this, which sounds reasonable on the front, they went and they started trying to suppress demand for the cars. And this is the movie goes into all the PR hijinks they went through and this sort of negative advertising about electric cars. And the whole experiment was just put on the kibosh once, once this happened. So... Uh Right. They started. To, they, they, well, also in 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 the movie, you also a show. Of, a, a, we talk about the to get on the list to, to buy one of the cars. You have to go through a complicated. Uh, you have to fill out a complicated form, and uh, Mel Gibson was complaining about that in the movie. Well, a lot of people were. I mean, we you know we put in some celebrities in the movie to give the you know the thing a little bit of of interest. But no matter who you were, you, you had to fill out these applications to get these cars, and they asked a lot of very intense questions. A lot of people felt that the, the application process was designed so that they made sure that you get the car back when they were able to cancel the program. But I, I wouldn't go that far. I just, just a lot to it. I think even later on, Toyota actually created significant hoops to, to jump through just to buy the car. I remember trying hard to get an EV1, and just the fact that I was a resident of Pennsylvania made it impossible to get one. Even if I promised them that I would truck it back to California each time it broke on my own dime, they still refused to give me one. Oh, yeah. You, in fact, you know, the funny story about that, Stan Oshinsky, another great American hero, in my, in my view, engineering, who developed the nickel metal hydride battery with his wife, Iris, they couldn't get a car, and, and they were putting the batteries in the cars. They had to, I think, sneak a car out from California in a, in a semi-truck one night. So it was very serious business, and it's just, it's just a shame it went down like this. So uh, one of the objections that a lot of people make when, when you first tell them, maybe scientific thinkers, they say, well, oh, you're just uh, moving the pollution from, uh, from the tailpipe over to some other power plant. And I guess maybe you've already alluded to that, but that's just uh, turns out not to be true. I mean, the amount of pollution produced is actually less overall. Oh, considerably less. Yeah, there means certainly there's some truth to it because you've got to, the energy creates pollution somewhere unless you're doing it renewably, especially with wind, which turns out to be the cheapest way to go in, in, in most applications. Um, yeah, there's going to be pollution, but it, but, it, but it is considerably less. It's also centralized, and when you create the pollution in a centralized fashion, there's much more opportunities for energy savings. Because by taking a single power plant and putting the right kinds of scrubbers on it and making it more efficient, you're actually reducing pollution effectively from all those cars that are downstream of that power plant. Yeah. So, uh... There was a small role played by, by Carnegie Mellon 
in the in the whole saga. I don't know if, if either of you remember this. There was a paper written by a couple professors here, uh, right about the time EV1 came out, um, saying that the, uh, the the lead acid batteries, the production of these batteries would be would create so much lead airborne lead pollution that it would overwhelm. You know, it was a, well, they they said it would it would overwhelm the the improvements due to getting rid of lead getting lead out of gasoline. And it turned out that that paper. Go ahead. Sorry. I mean, this is, I mean, it's terrific that people are looking down the road and saying, "What are the problems?" And that's that's a sign of you know things working well. But what doesn't work well is is that it doesn't add up that story, and it doesn't add up because lead acid batteries is such a an old technology. The renew recycling that's already been established for that for gas cars is pretty much established. Anytime you get a lead acid battery, you take it to Sears, you know, it goes dead. They take it back, the thing gets recycled. And nickel and lithium batteries, which are so much more powerful, though the elements, A, they're much less toxic, and B, the, um, the, the elements in them are so valuable that they can be scrapped just for the materials in them. And I, I think the number one, I don't think, the number one battery pollution in the world by a huge, um, a huge margin over lead-acid batteries from cars is, is disposable batteries. I mean, if everybody shifted to rechargeable batteries, whether they're lead-acid or not, we'd be in much better shape than with these disposables. So uh, we're talking to uh, we're talking about the electric car. If you want to uh, give us a call, you can call us at four one two two six eight nine seven two eight. So uh, Chris, can you stick around a little bit longer, or you have to uh, run off? Well, I think you're in very good hands. Uh, uh, if you try me back in about ten minutes, if you have any follow up questions, uh, I'm just uh, running around today. But it sounds like a, a terrific show, and uh, I, I hope to talk to you some more. Okay, we'll give you a call a little bit later then. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks. So um, one of the things uh, that uh, has come up a number of times as well is the whole issue of um, hydrogen, well, hydrogen fuel cell cars. And I don't know if Ela, I mean, I know Chris has studied this very well, but I don't know if you're uh, I've studied it a bit. It's, it's actually fantastical following the line of reasoning people go through with hydrogen. It is... I think an incredible amount of smoke that was blown into the face of people like the California Air Resources Board, convincing them that, oh, here's the real technology, here's the real solution. The reason hydrogen came around to people as as a sort of rhetorical argument was because of this idea that it just takes too long to recharge batteries. And a tangential point is it doesn't. Recharging the batteries just depends on how big of current you can dump into them to recharge them, especially with great batteries like nickel metal hydride or lithium ion. You can charge them in 15 minutes if you so desire. You just have to have nice, big, thick electric cables going into your uh -huh. local gas station where you do the recharging. <laughs> the trick with hydrogen that is just absolutely phenomenal is the gas companies get to form the hydrogen from natural gas, so they're still in business. You spend energy forming the hydrogen or electrolyzing water, which is incredibly inefficient to get to the hydrogen. Then you get to transport the hydrogen. And one way of doing that is you go back to electricity somewhere in the pipe and then go to hydrogen again and put it in the gas tank. And later on, you reform it back out and make water, make electricity, and you run, guess what, an electric motor. And the thing people don't realize very often about hydrogen cars is a hydrogen car is an electric car. It acts like an electric motor. All the hydrogen is doing is storing the energy just like batteries do with the added well, it's benefit. Like gasoline. It's like another form of gasoline. It's as if you have another form of energy storage, yeah, just like you would with gasoline, except you're driving an electric motor. And you could just put batteries on that vehicle, get rid of the highly combustible hydrogen, get rid of the problems with containing the hydrogen and transporting it and forming it, and you end up with much more efficient overall processes. 
Uh, we have a call from Paul in Edgewood. Paul, are you there? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, I have a question about electric cars in other countries outside the U.S. Are they common? Uh, you know, are electric cars successful outside the United States? I can't recall the name of uh, some of the outside electric car companies, but I know that you can probably get to this one by Googling it some. But there's a Mini Cooper that I think a Korean-American company has transformed into a lithium-ion Mini Cooper that's electric, and they're using it for the British ambassadorship in Mexico. So that's one <laughs> example of an electric car Well, but you can, get, you can have a car custom-made. You can have, There are ways of converting. You go, there's people, I think, who for $80,000 or something, they'll take your favorite car and stick a bunch of batteries and a motor in it, right? There are, but there's actually some companies out of the woodwork in Europe, uh, in South America, and in Canada who are actually starting to have conversion processes for a specific car. So they're taking a car and, and sort of mass-producing a converted car. Um, I don't know that it's taken off quite yet, even in other parts of the world, although, again, in Canada, I think there's a program where they're trying to take a sedan and make an electric car out of that, too. Yeah. Uh, on the website, I have a link to another company called Miles Automotive, which apparently is going to be releasing next year a, a powerful electric car. But, um, Paul, thank you for, for your call. Okay, thank Okay, you. bye. Uh, we have another call, I believe, uh, Alan. Are you oh, there? hi, Danny. Hi, Alan. Actually, so I think, you, I think your previous caller just answered my question. I was um, just wondering whether it would be possible to sort of take your current car, say, like I, my car in a few years' time, I might want to sort of get rid of it, and instead of um, buying a, a new uh, regular car, uh, for a sort of several thousand dollars, perhaps convert it into one of these electric cars. There's several models that you can do that to particularly well, so let me just mention that. One of them is the Porsche 914, which yeah. is a really old car. The old car? It's an old car. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's but there's 20 or 30 years old. That... There's really nice conversion kits for that on the web that you can buy. The other one is the Volkswagen Golf and the Volkswagen Cabriolet. What about the Jetta? I believe the Jetta is also very easy to convert. Oh, really? So the Jetta, the Golf, Cabriolet, and the 914, there's conversion kits that you buy that almost snap in once you lift the engine out. Now, let me give you some, uh, some caveats. One caveat is usually these conversion kits are lead-acid batteries. Uh -huh. And so you're really getting realistically 30 or 35 miles range. Oh, I see. So it's local commuting. And yeah. second of all, you usually are leaving your transmission in the car. And, of course, the transmission is quite a loss. It's heavy, yeah? It's, it's heavy, and it's also yeah. actually you're losing torque through the transmission. And lots, some electric cars, like the Toyota RAV4, don't have a transmission at all. Yeah. Now, um, I think about this as a sort of a, not just me, but a sort of a, a, a way of shifting from the internal combustion engine to electric cars, you know, rather than everybody replace these regular cars with electric cars as they buy new ones, to, to sort of push for um, these, you know, for extra energy into trying to... You know, make these conversions more um, simple and cheap. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks for your call. Okay. Okay. Yeah, cheers. So uh, somebody called in, I believe, and just uh, asked a question. Um, oh, by the way, we're just to remind you again, we're talking about electric cars. Uh, and uh, if you want to uh, call us up, give us a call at 412-268-9728. So uh, one caller uh, left a message and asked about, um, I think, the... Re um, Alternative fuel source, um, not alternative fuels, but um, I think bio, biofuels or uh, biodiesel, things like that. Absolutely. There's a lot of push now. Uh, you know, Bush said something in one of those more recent speeches he gave about biofuels and about efforts toward biofuels. And, ethanol. And ethanol-based yeah. biofuels. 
And it's interesting. There's a lot of talk I've seen amongst folks who are much more in the know than I am about, about energy for cars. There's, there's the question of ethanol. There's a question of other types of biomass-based biofuels. And there's a question of politics. Where does it come from? So, for instance, today, it turns out, I believe the country is Brazil. But in Brazil, taking sugarcane and, and creating a biofuel out of sugarcane is much, much less expensive even than the current price of gas. And so Brazil is ramping up production in, in several big startup companies there. And potentially, it's, it's a real outlet for shifting the politics of, of energy. This yeah. is interesting because Brazil is, is kind of well-positioned for doing that throughout the American continent. Well, I've, I've heard conflicting stories about this. There um, uh, was an article recently that came out from some Cornell scientists saying that the energy it takes to make the, like the ethanol from corn is actually about the same as the, the energy you get out of it. In other words, by the time you've, you've made the pesticides, you've made the fertilizer, which are all fossil fuel-based processes, you've you know, planted them, you've harvested them, you've ground them up, you've boiled them to get the all the all the high and you've transport the stuff. By the time you put all that energy into it, you've basically put as much energy in as you're gonna get out of the fuel at the end or so close that it's not Yeah, it's true it's, that it corn is not ideal. Yeah. Actually I, I believe I've heard the similar thing. And in fact there's types of switchgrass that are much more efficient in terms of number of joules per bushel or per acre uh-huh. than corn. And the same thing goes with cane sugar. I think it's more efficient. In fact, there's a whole other political side to this, which is an argument being made that the gross use of corn to make ethanol ends up being a major problem for food production for the U.S., and it actually might be a bad direction for us to go in terms of converting a lot of land that's used for food production, especially for for feed for animals, for example, over to uh, fuel production. What What do you mean? It would be it would be. It, apparently, there's an argument that that says that doing this actually takes some of the surplus foods that we we ship overseas yeah. and transfers them to fuel production, and this leads to a problem in terms of food shortages. I see. Uh, well, we're talking about electric cars. If you want to give us a call, uh, the number is 412-268-9728. see, what else do we have in the um, list of things that we wanted to talk about? Uh, well, one idea um, and question I had is, what about electric buses? I know that, for example, San Francisco has the Muni system, right, which uses electric buses with um, the wire uh, overhead, uh, lines, overhead yeah. lines uh, that, that they connect to. But it would seem to me uh, that that would be a great application for this technology because, first of all, the bus... Uh, goes up, stops all stops and starts constantly. So you're going to save a lot of energy from regenerative braking. And goes up and down hills. You're going to save all that energy. It's got a high high weight to resist to air resistance ratio. Plus, when you get to the end of the line, you can pop a new battery pack in. You don't have to wait to recharge it. So I mean, is this something that's? Plus, we know the noise they make. The buses, the roar they make when they're starting and stopping. The huge the diesel fumes that they pour out. All of that stuff is a terrible blight. Yeah, we who live in Pittsburgh know all about the diesel fuel buses, and you're right. I mean, I lived in San Francisco for several years, and electric buses have been fantastic there. The trick is electric buses are particularly nice because you've just got the electric overhead lines, and the motors in the buses aren't that heavy, and they're dead quiet. As soon as you put the batteries on the buses, the problem is you're carting around this big, heavy weight, 
and you have the whole issue of just the batteries to deal with. Yeah. So it turns out that it's much actu- much better, actually, to leave the electricity power system off board the bus and have it just uh, capture that electricity as it moves. So that turns out to be preferable in the case of buses. Of course, the train system is another great example, right? All through Europe, you have gorgeous train system that gets people to and fro work and, and home. And in that case, again, they have no problem because they have trains that are electric motors, uh, just like a diesel train has as well, and the power is provided by electric rails. Good. Yes, uh, of course. Well, that, that's... that's, that's uh, um, so uh, that's a great thing, right. There, but... Uh, There's one other uh, option that may be coming out in the future. So there's been a lot of hype about plug-in hybrids and the idea that hybrid technology might be kind of a bridging technology that takes you to electric cars. And it's possible, and I think personally that it's highly likely that Toyota is actually going to come out with a plug-in hybrid. I believe there's going to be a version of the Prius in a year or two that will have a plug on it. And they even had a press release, I think, in Britain where somebody from Toyota said something to that effect. Really? So that may change, again, the... uh, equation for where companies stand today if Toyota actually takes a stand and does a real plug-in hybrid so we have a caller uh, Carol in Squirrel Hill go ahead Carol oh hi Danny um, so I have a question about the nickel cadmium where does it come from and there's a lot of it to make the batteries well nickel cadmium is yet another battery type so the one in my car the one in the Toyota RAV4 EVs that you'll see in who killed the electric car as well as the um, General Motors EV1s, the latter versions, is nickel metal hydride. Nickel cadmium is what some people call NICAD for short. And NICAD is a relatively old rechargeable technology and uh, was used in uh, rechargeable batteries for a time yeah, and even the, in some early phones. Yeah. The oh. problem with NICAD was it had something called the memory effect. As you charged and discharged it, if you didn't discharge it all the way, it would become less and less able to hold the same amount of charge. Its capacity mm. went down over time. So it was actually kind of a bad choice for cars. I see. However, nickel metal hydride and the newer lithium ion have turned out to be really quite excellent choices for cars, and they have multiple times the energy density of what you get out of a lead acid battery. Carol, I have a question for you. Mm. Um, do you uh, what, what, what would you uh, consider yourself a um, an average uh, consumer of uh, or <laughs> well, nobody's average, but uh, would you want an electric car yourself? Oh yeah, sounds really interesting to me. I'm surprised I haven't heard about it more before. Have you seen the movie? Not yet. Oh, okay. Well, it's playing down in Squirrel Hill, so you can check it out. Great. Yeah. Uh, anything else? Uh, no, I think that's it. <laughs> oh, okay. where does the nickel come from? That's right. Where does the nickel oh, yes. actually come from? I'm guessing that it's mined, but actually I have no idea for sure. That would be a good thing to do a bit of an internet search on and look at an encyclopedia. It's mined, is it? I'm guessing that it's through mining that they obtain the nickel, yes. Outside the U.S.? That I don't know. I, yeah. wouldn't, I don't know what countries are the foremost providers of such material. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll look that up then. Okay, thank you, thank Carol. You. Um, well, uh, we're talking about electric cars and um, about the new movie called Who Killed the Electric Car, which is playing in Squirrel Hill right now. And... Um, we have Ila Norbosh here in the studio, and uh, we're, he has a uh, an electric car of his own, and and is kind of an expert on the whole thing. Um, see, what other things that I wanted to mention? Yes, well, this is some some of these things are better for Chris, uh, but one of the things I noticed in the movie, there's a very interesting um, 
Well, well the way that GM switched switched around from being from first building for supporting building the car and then deciding it wasn't really going to market it and then going all out against it to the point where they actually destroyed they recalled and destroyed all of their cars. So, um what is the excuse that they're giving for having for doing that, for destroying their cars and what is the real reason that they destroyed all the cars? The basic party line for why they even stopped producing them was there's just no interest from consumers. That there's a couple of there's there's a few crazy kooks out there who want electric cars, but the average consumer just isn't interested in the technology. And then the reason they gave for recalling them, and they didn't really fully admit to destroying them quite in the manner that one would hope. But the idea the, the theory we have for why they destroyed them at least is liability. Right? They wanted to get rid of the car, they wanted to erase it. The last thing they wanted was a bunch of cars that are performing beautifully continuing to perform beautifully, surpassing expectations year by year. That sounds a bit like a, well, that's not liability. a harebrained theory, right? That's not liability such as crash, liability to crashes. You're talking about liability. Li- well, I wouldn't use that word. It's PR liability is perhaps yeah, the right way to put it, yeah. right? The other side of it is if they want to stop the program, the last thing they want to do is have service technicians who know how to deal with it. And they don't want to keep producing parts for it. They don't want to keep running, having the cars run. And so it makes sense to get the cars off the road rather than have a whole support structure running to have the cars stay on the road and have people be able to take them in for service and replace the motor, et cetera. The Toyota RAV4 kind of faces this funny challenge, right? They actually sold a few. I actually went out and bought one, which means they're obligated, I think, to service it if it breaks, at least for the first seven years or so. Well, how many yeah, – That's but see, are they – real? I mean, if you have a 1962 Corvette – GM is not obligated to maintain any part. I mean, there's obviously, as you maybe seven years. I don't know what it is, but obviously there's some there's some amount of time that that goes by after which their obligation is is gone. That's right. And the contract could have that in it. And we have a sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I think Chris is back on the line. Are you there, Chris? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, we've been continuing the conversation, and um, I don't know if you heard what I just what I just said. Well, we were just trying to think about what, what we were discussing is why did GM actually destroy the cars, and, and what was their excuse, their, their PR position for why they did it? Right. Well, their uh, PR position is that nobody wanted them and that uh, they didn't have enough spare parts for the cars. And, you know, that's, you know, there's a truth to both of those arguments, but they're not the full story. And, you know, th- th- those two questions right there made us ask, well, why didn't they make any spare parts for these cars? And... B, um, if nobody wanted them, then how come most Americans never, ever heard of them? So it's, there's a lot of aspects to the story. There's no singular you know, point of blame. It's just that what I hope the film does is get people thinking about you know, how we can change what we're driving and, and why the obstacles are, are so difficult to overcome. Yeah. So, I mean, what I was just saying was that this idea of obligate the liability or the obligation they have to, to preserve the car. I mean, wouldn't the, for example, in the movie, there's a, there was a scene where there were, there were about, I don't know, a few dozen um, EV1s in a, in a, a lot in Burbank. And uh, the protesters were out there saying that they were about to be taken away to be crushed. The protesters were out there saying, don't do this, we'll buy the cars. And right. they came up with a million dollars, right? A million plus. Yeah, 1.2 million. And. They, uh, they legally indemnified General Motors from any jury trial for the duration of those vehicles, and they offered to rebrand them. So I think the protesters 
really went the distance in making GM an offer to try to get those cars, and uh, GM just wasn't GM would, used to. They would have no obligation to. Um, they would have no obligation at all to uh, to repair the cars, to service them, to maintain them. Liabilities for any 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 accidents that occurred or anything like that. Is that what you're saying? They, they... That, that's what the offer was. And you know, I heard a GM spokesman, and we talked to GM as part of our movie. We wanted to really get all sides and and talk about things. They go, well, you know, a jury trial, they could still come after you in some case. So, you know, we thought. I guess that was part of the rationale, but I, I think. I think it's pretty weak. If you look at all the evidence together, I think they just didn't want electric cars on the road to remind people that they're a possibility, and yeah. they're not. That's got to be the reason, and it's really, really nefarious. It really, I don't know what the right word is, um, Machiavellian, at, at, at least. They're just protecting the way they make money, and the, the tragedy for GM is they're going bankrupt, and they destroyed their own car, which is really about the next generation of vehicles. And even if electric vehicles you know, aren't for the mass market, you can certainly argue that hybrids and plug-in hybrids are. And they, they don't even have, a, you know, they have some things in the pipeline, but they should have products on the market now. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot a... of people said they went to Las Vegas, if you were GM, and you put all your money on SUVs and trucks, and you didn't have even one small gamble on an alternative vehicle. It's, it's kind of reckless. I believe we have a call on the line. Alan, are you there? Yeah, me again, yeah. Yeah, so what was your comment this time? Okay, so I just checked on Wikipedia where uh, where the world supply of nickel is. So, you know, it's not in the Middle East, let's say. Uh-huh. So, uh, 30% is in Canada, so they're trustworthy. Uh, 40% in Russia. Uh, and then there's some stuff in New Caledonia, which I'm not sure where that is. Australia, Cuba, and Indonesia. And then final comment is that most of the Earth's nickel is in the Earth's core. I don't suppose that's uh, available at the moment. <laughs> so it seems okay. like it's um, for more stable reasons, let's say, than the current um, supply of oil. Right. So, I mean, I, I guess, thank you for your call. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guess the point, the point being that there's going to be, a, if this really takes off, there's going to be a lot of need for these, these, um, these nickel hydride batteries and other types of batteries. And uh, we don't want to get ourselves in the situation. But on the other hand, these batteries are, you buy them once for the car for 100,000 miles. It's not like refilling the car with, with nickel every, every week. So it, it's important, I guess, to look at these, these considerations. But it's not the same thing as the, as, as the oil. The other side of it is that gasoline is gasoline. There's a few places to get it. There's some major suppliers like Saudi Arabia. And we have all sorts of political problems from the Middle East as a result of this. Battery technology is diverse by nature. There are multiple different kinds of batteries that you can build. There are multiple companies that could conceivably build batteries, and they can compete with one another. And so it's just inherently more of a diverse planet in which we can function as an energy consumer. Well, and of course, the battery is just a storage medium, and the electricity is the issue there in terms of the energy. But that, that can be produced many, many ways. So, well, in North America alone, they, the Midwest could be filled. In fact, it's already happening with... with uh, wind generation, and they could still grow plants underneath them. So there's a, there's a lot of options for electricity. It's just we have to have the concentrated willpower to do it. So there was a caller uh, oh, while you, were, um, while you were away for a minute, Chris, uh, asking about uh, what, what, what are other options for buying electric cars that are either currently available or on the, horizon, the near-term horizon? 
Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Well, um, right now available on the market are a, a group of neighborhood electric vehicles. There's uh, the Gem Car, which I think is made in South Dakota, and there's the uh, Zap Car, which is, uh, comes out of the San Francisco Bay Area. And a lot of these options are all explored on the, the site PluginAmerica.com, PluginAmerica.com. And that's a nonprofit group that's you know trying to advocate for these issues. And then down the pike, of course, there's the Tesla sports car, um, which is coming out next uh, summer. And I would guess that the Chinese are going to like start adding a lot of options to the marketplace. Uh, and the next, the first car manufacturer to coming to market with a plug-in is apparently Toyota with their plug-in version of a Prius, but they haven't announced a date yet. Yeah, so the Tesla car, I, I believe that was uh, one of the people, Alan Cocconi, who was involved in the original um, impact design, the original converter to convert DC into AC, right? Yes, that's the right. Same guy. He's, he's involved with Tesla Motors, I guess, and they have a sports car that can go from zero to 60 in three seconds. Yes, they do. Some it's insane. Uh, <laughs> and actually, Alan, Alan I think, uh, was a consultant on that project, but um, he, his own company, AC Propulsion, has a uh, conversion of the Toyota Scion. And it's called the X-Box, which is quite a promising, uh, you know, four-passenger electric vehicle. So folks are doing it. But um, but that is aren't, aren't they making aren't they making these high-powered sports car type things rather than like the the Model T of electric cars, which is I think what we need. Yeah. Uh, well, no, the Scion is, a, is around the car, around the town car. Uh-huh, the, the, okay. road, the Tesla definitely is a high-end car, but that's because they're they're trying to you know start at the high end of the market and trickle down. The other end of the market are these neighborhood electric vehicles, which are, you know, are, you know only go like 45 miles an hour, and they're not for everybody. So it's, uh, we just hope that the car makers, as they, uh, they realize that people are interested in other options, and people begin demanding other options, that they'll, they'll enter the marketplace. So uh, we're talking about electric cars. You can give us a call at 412 412- Two six eight nine seven two eight. I'll just say that you know I uh, thank you very much for having me on the program. And the, the whole a documentary like Who Killed the Electric Car totally depends on word of mouth and people talking about it because there's no promotion budgets. It's just you know people writing reviews and the television pretty much doesn't touch us. So I really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to people about it. Yeah, well I hope we have uh, we do have we do have some listeners based on the calls that are coming in. Um, I'm told to check my emails. Maybe I have another question via email. I've also got to say, I, I, I'm on one of the uh, mailing lists for the Rob 4 EV, and we've been watching Chris Payne making this documentary and, and asking for help with dust and such and footage and such. And it's been really impressive watching him and his team put together the documentary. And we're pleased that it's come out because it's got incredibly good timing. And hopefully that combined with what how much insanity is going on in the Middle East can lead people to start to kind of put the pieces together and see that it's really time to demand some kind of change. So, uh, let's see, what else do we have on the, on the list here of, of things? Um, yes, we, we talked a little about uh, yeah, the hydrogen cars, uh, the, the fuel cell cars, uh, while you were gone, Chris. Uh, and the movie uh, does a good job of kind of debunking that as a, as a, as a feasible, at least in the near-term uh, approach. And I think it's really... Uh, one of the amazing things is that Bush is pushing that. Well, not amazing at all. In fact, that maybe that's the <laughs> a well, sign actually, that, that was that was the I was all in favor of hydrogen fuel cells because initially it was uh, Amory Levins, who's who's a, a great scientist working out of Colorado, was pushing it. And my warning light only came on when I heard Bush 
advocating that. I went, what? The Bush administration is behind something, you know, environmentally responsible? I was, it just made me sit up and go, what is this? And unfortunately, as we began to research it for, for our film, it just, the wheels came off this technology in terms of being an efficient way of using power in a car. And I'm sure you already discussed it, but, you know, the, the, here's, here's the joke about hydrogen. It's the most abundant element in the universe. Unfortunately, none of it is found here on planet Earth. <laughs> it's always combined with something. It, it's it's a you know, it's very de- very dependent. So yeah. it's with, and to separate it, it takes a lot of energy. So that's that's why you know, whether the fuel cell engine works or not, making the hydrogen will always be energy intensive compared to just using a battery. Well, I think also that I think some of the sites I read uh, was that the the energy, or maybe it's in the movie, the energy take to. When you lose a lot, when you when you when you crack hydro, crack water into hydrogen and oxygen, yeah, you lose a whole lot of you lose fifty percent of the energy or something just in that process, mm-hmm. compared to much higher efficiencies when converting it to electricity and plugging your your car into the, you know to recharge it. Yeah, and there's all kinds of safety issues. You know, they can't put uh, like with natural gas, you can add an odor to it. So if there is a leak, which is rare, but you can smell it, and hydrogen, you can't add anything to it. So if there's a leak. You don't know it, and you turn the light switch on your garage, and you have an explosion. And that's you're just problems that haven't been worked out, and problems that have been worked out with battery-powered electric. So that's why the the whole thing was such a, a shame to, to go down like it did. We had a question from a caller uh, who sent uh, who just left a message with the producer. It says, uh, "Are hybrid cars worth it? Do they improve the environment enough for the extra cost?" Any comments on that? Paul Scott at Plug in America would say, no. No car companies you want to wait for a plug-in version of a hybrid because hybrids basically just know the gas car. I have a I have a Prius myself and I think it's a great it's a great transition car. A it gets people used to the idea of electricity in their car and what you'll see is people driving them trying to keep the engine from ever coming turning turning on. Well that builds confidence in a in a new kind of thought. So that's good. It plus they get high MPG so we're using less gas. So I'm all in favor of hybrids. I just, I just hope the box keeps opening and people go plug-in hybrid. That's what I want. I think the day that plug-in hybrids jump in, the the, the aha we're going to get is when people who have a short commute realize that when they get home and plug it in and leave the next day and get home and plug it in and leave the next day, they're never, they're gonna... never turning on the gas car except when they go on that trip to D.C. And that, that's when the moment will hit them and they go, oh, I didn't need the gas tank. I didn't need the gasoline engine. I could just have an electric car. Wow. So if a hybrid car costs, I don't know, I don't know what they cost these days. It's quite a bit more than a car of the same size, isn't it? Like a compare a Corolla to a Prius? I mean, $10,000 difference or something? I don't know, maybe... Oh, no, not, not that much. I, I don't know the exact number. It is more expensive because you have a motor and an engine. It's two, two things in one, but yeah. the, the, it's not that different. I, I think my uh, my Prius oh, my was $21,000. Yeah. And actually, I bought that in 2004, and I just sold it for 19000 about six months <laughs> ago. So I... I if people can afford it, it's a great way to start. Hey, thanks again for having me on. I'm sorry I'm like so rushed today. There's like three things going on, but your program sounds great. And if you ever want to call again, please. Uh, check okay, out. thanks a lot for uh, for joining us. Okay, bye guys. Okay. Bye. So long. We have, uh, I believe, a caller named uh, Joe and Carrick. Is he there, or did we I'm hang here. up on Joe? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, we lost okay, we lost well, Chris, but go ahead with your question. Well, my thing is that. 
we need to make it easier for people to live near their work and and do away with a lot of these cars. You know, automobiles are fine, but just because of the volume of it, that's the, that's the problem with the pollution. I mean, everybody has to have a car to go here, everywhere. When we could make our society be a socialist about it and live near our our jobs and 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 things like that. Yeah, that's a really really good point because yeah. Uh, yeah, I go, I go traveling in Europe, and I always see far shorter commutes. People are taking the train, they're walking to work, they're bicycling to work. Right. And this is what's missing in this country. Urban planning here has kind of failed us miserably, and we well, have these exurbs and suburbs. That's where the profit is. I mean, the automobile uh, salespeople, you know, they have a lot of political clout, and, and they help design the, you know, maintain the system until we, until we take back a our system from the automobile manufacturers and those people, then uh, we, you know, we have yeah. to... Uh, well, I don't, think, I don't think it's just the... I don't think that particular thing is the fault of the automobile companies. I mean, if you look at the way development, the way sprawl happens in this country, I mean, you've got a lot of factors there. A company, they can buy cheap land where there isn't anything there, and they can just plunk down a big shopping center. Right, and people will come to it, and uh, they don't have to pay for the roads. They don't have to pay for anything. And then, and then we're then we're stuck. Like if right. you if you if, if I live in Pittsburgh, well, I find myself having to go to Monroeville for for a lot of stuff because I just right. can't buy it. I mean, I try to I try to live in Squirrel Hill, which has a nice shopping district right in the middle of a urban area, which yeah. I walk there and bike there all the time, but. But, the, the, but for a lot of stuff, you can't. Okay, there's no hardware stores anymore, right? You got to right. go to Home Depot. Yeah, and I mean, the wrong people have the power. That's what it is. The privateers have all the power, and the states become a little the lap dog in the doormat for the privateers. And that's that's uh, that's where we're at. Yeah. Well, the people who run some of the state actually own shares in the in the companies that the profiteers profit from too. So there's a little bit of collaboration there. Yes, and there's also the whole thing with the TIFs, which is the tax incentives for people to build these ridiculous malls over green space and things like that. So right. um, anyway, thanks for calling, Joe. We got, sure. We're just, just about running out of time. Uh, the, the kind of moral of the whole thing is, it seems to me, just watching the movie, um, is this, we've got to get away from this trusting of corporations to save us. And I think that's, I mean, so well, it's just a parable for uh, the way corporations have just, you know, failed us totally. In this particular this particular case, it's kind of an open and shut case. It's really obvious to me personally because I watched corporations say how bad electric cars were. I watched the carb hearings and and saw Toyota and Honda and GM and Ford saying this is just impossible. And then I'd be sitting in my electric car on Highway 101 driving with a show on NPR where they're interviewing somebody from General Motors saying electric cars are impossible. And I'm in an electric car in traffic listening to the show on my radio electrically. <laughs> and you, you, you do this for not one year, not two years, but for five years with the same car day in and day out. Take it to Pittsburgh. It still works just fine. And eventually you just stop believing the corporations. They're not telling the truth. Okay, well, um, thanks a lot, Ela Norbash, and uh, also to Chris Payne for um, being on our show today. You can, as always, go to leftout.info for more information and to hear the full program uh, later on. So uh, see you in two weeks. Thank you for the show.